Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. It's good to be back. I had a nice week off in uh, Los Angeles with my son and uh, happy to be back. Uh, however, Robert Craig is not with us as we start recording. You may join us uh, mid-show, but uh, we do have Rebecca Lynch from the Wisconsin Working Families Party. Rebecca, good to see you. Good to be here. So, uh, we have a number of topics, uh, including today we will be joined later in the show by uh, a researcher from uh, the Economic Policy Institute who put out a fabulous report comparing Wisconsin and Minnesota, and we're going to talk later with, uh, with that researcher, and uh, we're going to talk a little politics, though, to get the show going. Um, we wanted to talk Tammy Baldwin. There's a couple of reasons why, and we're going to start the show with that, and that is... We want to talk about the ad that Tammy's running around uh, her mother's addiction, and in, but more broadly, uh, how it relates to the current opioid crisis, and just more broadly, how we are trying to reassess how we deal with drug addiction, mental health broadly. And Rebecca, this ad's pretty courageous, right? I mean, we talked. I think you guys talked last week, I wasn't on the show a little bit about that Tammy was finally starting to actually talk about this publicly now that her mother has, has passed. Um, but it's still, um, it's always powerful when a, when a politician combines the personal with what's really happening and what's going on that other families are struggling with. And this ad does that in a way that I think is, is relevant because this issue is so important. Yeah, I mean, I think we saw that with uh, Randy Bryce's campaign announcement um, where he was talking about his family and his mom and her struggle with health. And I think when, um, you know, people who are running to be our leaders or running for re-election show um, a little bit of themselves in a really authentic way and, you know, show us that the things that we might be going through, they go through too, it gives us uh, the ability to say, okay, that person's going to go to D.C., and represent, you know, the struggles that I'm having and, and do that faithfully. You know, it's one thing to read about the opioid crisis. It's another thing to experience it and experience it so intimately. Um, I think it's really um, brave and uh, raw, you know, for Tammy to do this. And, you know, this is for anyone who's been a child with a parent who's had, you know, any type of issue like this. I mean, it's, it's really can be very traumatic. And I'm amazed that she's talking about it, but I'm so glad she is because it's just ripping apart families um, throughout the state. And I think, you know, to bring um, some humanity into the conversation is really important, particularly because the other side has been trying to make it a political football, which it shouldn't be. I think what we've seen so far is a lot of bipartisan efforts to try to tackle the opioid crisis, which is great. Um, however, in the case of Tammy's race, the Republicans are trying to paint her as being um, someone who doesn't care about the opioid crisis, which is strange. Um, and I think it shouldn't be a political football. We should all be trying to figure out what to do together. We want to quickly run the ad just so, so our listeners can hear it. I remember what it was like to come home from school and not be able to get into the house. I'd pound on the door, but my mother wouldn't answer. She'd be passed out inside. My mother had a drug abuse problem. She struggled with addiction to prescription drugs her whole life. I had to grow up fast, very fast. So when I see the opioid crisis that's wrecking so many Wisconsin families, all I can tell you is I've been there. I know how hard this fight is. I know the stigma that comes with drug abuse and mental illness. I've worked with Republicans and Democrats to get the funding Wisconsin needs. 
so people have somewhere to turn for help. It's just a start. 15 people a week are overdosing in Wisconsin. This is a crisis for our country and far too many Wisconsin families. I'm Tammy Baldwin, and I approve this message because this fight hits close to home. So obviously, again, very personal. Um, and wanted to, and, and, and the ad's also important, right? Because this, is, this issue is something I think over the last couple of years has really everyone's eyes has, has been opened to it. And we're seeing, you mentioned, bipartisan movement in some areas in terms of really wanting to start to talk about this. But we've talked about on the show that it's an epidemic. And if you're going to do that, you re if you're going to really go after it as a medical crisis as opposed to from a criminal justice approach, um, we're going to need to put more resources. So this is really just beginning. And opioids are just sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of how we really approach broadly um, on this issue. But I want to get back to what you were talking about earlier, how it's contrasting to sort of how not only they're going after Tammy on this issue, but just sort of how these the two different races, right? What's been going on in the uh, Senate race in terms of between Nicholson and uh, Leah Vukmir. Um, but before I do that, any other final thoughts on, on the Baldwin ad or anything? But so, no, okay, so I really do want to dive into to what's... Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, geez, it's hard to keep score in what's been going on on the Republican side. But again, I think everybody knows Kevin Nicholson is running a, a very high-financed uh, special packs, big, big packs, uh, a lot of ads uh, for him against Leah Vukmir, who's... You know, long-time established conservative Republican uh, within the state Republican Party, um, but the it's just kind of gotten crazy. Nicholson last week, I w wasn't here. I don't know if you <laughs> if you got a chance to talk about his absolutely ridiculous comments about veterans and you know Democratic uh, that you can't really properly be a veteran and be a Democrat is insane. But apparently, Leah Vukmir needs to up it. Yesterday, um, Wednesday, news broke that she actually tried to compare Tammy Baldwin to, to, to being a terrorist, that she's somehow on team terrorists, and uh, compared her to the to the, the 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 fine gentleman who helped mastermind 9/11. This is this is insanity. <laughs> it's like, um, and this is not what I would have expected from Leah Vukmir. I would this it seems. Like this is a product of the times, Rebecca. Um, this is a, even the right right Wisconsin is going after Leah Vukmir this morning, Thursday, when we record for for this ridiculous uh, effort to go after uh, Tammy. But again, it shows kind of the craziness and what's kind of become commonplace uh, within the Republican Party these days in their primaries. Yeah, it used to be that uh, Democrats and Republicans could just disagree. But the fact that we're at a place now where uh, not not some side group, some shadow group, some crazy right wing radio host, but the candidate who might come out of the primary and potentially could be our U.S. senator comparing our current U.S. senator to a terrorist um, and, and one of the most infamous terrorists uh, in the history of our country is really insane. Um, and for a bunch of reasons, one, like the, the language is just like something that I, I can't even believe 
a credible candidate is using. Uh, and the reason behind it is because Tammy has supposedly stayed silent on uh, you know, the proceedings right now to approve um, the potential new CIA director, who uh, Gina Hapsell, who is involved in uh, the CIA black sites and torture. And there are a lot of Republicans who are in that camp, including John McCain, Susan Collins. So are they two terrorists in the eyes of Libra? It was just like crazy. Um, and I would just say, you know, as a New Yorker, um, who was like a very terrified um, teenager, my first week of high school, looking out the window and seeing, um, you know, what's happening on 9-11 and thinking we we're going to war and kids in my school whose parents couldn't come pick them up because they weren't ever coming to pick them up. And it was just like terrifying. And we had you know, young people across the country who answered the call to come defend New York and defend America and, like, to compare a Democratic U.S. senator who's serving the public um, and considering a nomination for a position to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the, like, 9-11 mastermind, is just, like, even more insulting than just calling her a terrorist. I, I actually cannot believe that this is something that we're talking about. And, you know, as, as you pointed out for me before the pod, she's getting a lot of heat from the right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, look, um, part of this, too, what, what's so weird is it's... <sighs> There's a strange strand of what it means to be an American that the far right has, and this sort of stuff seems to be trolling in it where they don't, there seems to be no sort of limit to what they're willing to say that would sort of portray Democrats or progressives or liberals or whatever you want to call it as un-American, right, or terrorists, right? And I, I just think it puts them way out of step, and it, it's surprising a li I, I got to say, I'm a little surprised Vukmir went down this path. It's not something I guess I can ever recall hearing coming out, but I, I think it is a product of what we've been talking about on the show in terms of what's happened to the Republican Party. This is now the party of Trump, and this is the kind of garbage, quite frankly, both what you saw from Nicholson last week and t you know this week from Vukmir, what I think we can expect more of. And so this stands in, in sharp contrast to sort of what Tammy Baldwin is out there on, what we know her record is, and sort of the credibility. And I got to say, I got to feel a lot more confident about sort of the position, even though we know this is the biggest spending race. We've talked about this. There's been more money spent to try to go after Tammy than any other sitting um, U.S. senator. So, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is going to be important. And it's not, I don't want to say it's nice, but it is, it's encouraging at some level as someone who wants to see Tammy win that that th these two can't seem to get out of their own way with this stuff. So, but we are we got to take a break. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more local politics um, and a few other issues. And but with that, we are the battleground, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Uh, we want to continue talking a little politics here and um, talk a little bit about some of the, what's been going on here within uh, the Wisconsin race, particularly the governor's race. Um, and we also have some special elections, so we'll start there. Um, we have mentioned before that the governor uh, was forced to declare two special elections in the state legislature, and uh, the courts actually forced him to do that. Um, but those, there's a primary next week on the Republican side 
there will be a primary in both Senate District 1, which is predominantly the Door County, Kewanee, suburban, um, east suburban uh, Green Bay and uh, Appleton area. Um, that has a primary. And then Assembly District 42, which is a lot of Columbia County, if you go just north of, um, of, of uh, northern Dane County, I should say, and into Columbia, I believe. Into, yes, yeah. into Columbia. Um, so primaries there, but then there'll be generals on, I think it's June 12th is, is the general. So that is just around the corner. I know um, our folks in our cooperative up there, we're going to be uh, moving an endorsement process here uh, in the very near future, but we expect to be involved uh, in those races, and in particular, Senate District 1. Uh, so if folks want to get involved, you know, please reach out to me. Happy to plug you in. We'll have stuff you can do from your home uh, to get involved in that race, uh, but that will be heating up. Um, Rebecca, any thoughts on any of these specials? Yeah, just, um, you know, I think it's really heartening that uh, on our side we have two great candidates, one for each seat, Ann Groves Lloyd in the 42nd AD and then Caleb Frostman in Senate District 1. Uh, and the Republicans are just, you know, tripping all over themselves in this primary. We'll see what happens. They've had to spend a lot of time and resources kind of beating each other up. I don't think they have particularly good candidates, but these are very tough seats. And for anyone who has the ability to go up to Door County for SD1 in particular, I think that folks are going to be looking at that race as perhaps a bellwether to see what happens in the fall. And so it's very important we win this seat. We need to win three Senate seats to flip the Senate this year. This would definitely be one of the ones we'd want to win. Uh, but it's also important that we win it to show that we can win in the fall. So it's a tough, I mean, I want to I want to manage expectations. Yeah. Very, very tough seat. But if folks have bandwidth, please go volunteer. Yeah, actually, Rebecca, I think this is a good conversation because um, one thing that we hope our show can do is occasionally provide not only long-term vision in terms of what we think progressives in the Democratic Party ought to be doing long-term um, if we were to take power, but to give you a little bit of an insider's look into like sort of politically what's going on and how are political strategists talking about this. And what Rebecca was just talking about is very important. I want to go mine there a little more because I think it's interesting. Um, what Rebecca is essentially saying is the SD1 race nationally, there are funders and people who might invest significantly in the state, see this race as important because it's as a bellwether that there's still a blue tide happening here, right? And, the, and part of the reason for that is the numbers in terms of Democrat Republicans in this seat look very similar to SD10 on the west side of the state that we just won by uh, like nine points or something, right? In, in a surprise, right? So they're looking to see if that's still going on. These are two very different districts. They're not the same as in terms of the kinds of voters. So that is probably not a fair assessment, but it's the reality. Um, and so whatever we can do to be able to take all of the support of progressives statewide, citizen action, you know, a lot of other folks, right? People from Working Families Party, our Wisconsin Revolution, Indivisible, right? We all need to put our time and energy into that race. One, because it's absolutely critical if progressives are ever gonna hold power, SD1 is part of that calculus right now. It's a very important part. Um, and it's an important part to continuing people nationally, many of them good progressive organizations who are looking to see whether they want to continue to invest, not just in whether they're going to help Tammy, but are they going to help state legislative races and down the ticket and see that the balance of power is in play here. So, you know, what does that all mean? I don't know. It may not mean much, but it, it, 
we wanted to at least share that with you. I think that's very interesting stuff. So hopefully this encourages people, please get out. Like we can volunteer, we can take all of our efforts and you know, compress it into one area. Uh, we can win this election. So uh, please uh, reach out to either one of us if you wanna get involved in this race. We're definitely gonna have, have, have work around there. Rebecca, we gotta transfer over to the governor's race. Okay. So I know we have to talk. I mean, look. Folks are, not, are, are out doing nomination papers right now, which means stuff's getting serious. It's getting real. Yeah, and when you run for governor, <laughs> you got to get 2,000 signatures. It's not a huge hurdle, but it's a hurdle that at least separates out. It's 2,000, right? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's 2,000 signatures. It's not a ton, but it's enough where, like, if you're really kind of don't have any organization, you got to work pretty hard, you know, you and your friends to get 2,000 signatures. So... Essentially, the race is starting to heat up, and I think we're seeing not not a great week for Democratic candidates uh, running uh, in terms of some of the news around them. And a lot of this has to do with the race is getting closer to the primary, and we're going to start to see more banging around on the Democratic side in terms of negative stuff coming out on people because candidates are trying to get through and clear the field. So some of the thoughts on some of the news this week, we've obviously had a number of less than stellar moments by Democratic candidates. Yeah, I, I mean, I wish that folks are trying to break through with like vision and policy and sure. you know, create a little news that way, but um, that's not what happened this week. So uh, there, there are two uh, candidates in particular we want to talk about. Um, one is kind of silly, so maybe we'll just like get that out of the way. But unfortunately, um, unfortunately, uh, Malin Mitchell made news this week for telling a crude joke. I don't think we need to retell the joke. No. Um, it's in the newspaper. You can read for yourself. We'll have a link to the crudity. <laughs> just, just an unforced error um, that kind of is baffling. Uh, then also another candidate, um, Matt Flynn, has made the news. Um, you know, I think folks have known for a while, particularly if they follow politics, that uh, Matt has been a lawyer for the archdiocese and um, obviously therefore very involved in um, the biggest legal issue that the archdiocese is facing, which is clerical rape. Um, however, uh, the extent to which he's been involved, I think, hasn't always been out there in the news. And so there was an article last week in uh, the Gazette, and then there's another one yesterday in the journal Sentinel, and I think kind of all over, um, and partially because he made news by responding and telling folks who were calling him out to, quote, jump in the lake, which made great news. So it's in all these different outlets now. But, um, you know, I think there's probably more to come out about this. And I, I don't feel, like, super comfortable um, commenting too much because I, I'm waiting for more detail and I'm waiting for, uh, you know, Matt Flynn to respond in more detail beyond jump in a lake. But, uh, you know, what we saw here is survivors and survivor networks coming forward uh, because, it, quite frankly, it was pretty traumatizing for them to see someone who they identify in their personal experience as having been so intimately involved with protecting their abusers, moving their abuser to other locations, um, really um, being a vigorous legal defense for their abusers in a way that um, really impacted these people's lives. And if you go back and you read the articles, you hear about folks who liens were put on their homes uh, to pay for legal fees. Um, if you compare you know, the settlement payouts in Wisconsin to other states, you see that here maybe um, you know, victims and survivors got a couple thousand dollars, and in other states it'd be several hundred thousand dollars, which you know, it's not about the money. I think it's about the difference between how folks were treated. So 
Yeah, so we'll see what happens with Matt Flynn. Uh, I, if I could just mention quickly Wisconsin's choice. So we have the fine, uh, the second round of voting is coming up. I think many listeners already voted in the first round where we went down from like something like 15 candidates to nine in the uh, early, early days of June, June 4th to June 7th. We're going to be voting from nine candidates down to four. And one of the things we'll be doing is having house parties throughout the state. I'm going to be doing a house party at my house. Um, you know, I know, I was talking to someone yesterday in Sheboygan. There's going to be house parties in Sheboygan. There are going to be house parties in Racine. There are going to be house parties all over the state uh, where folks are going to get together, talk about the governor's race like we do normally, um, and then vote in this round. And so, you know, if you have strong feelings about Flynn or Malin or any of the candidates, this is a great opportunity to really um, get involved. Uh, and, th and the last thing I'll say is that there is a forum that's coming up in Racine on May 30th at the Bryant Center, which is at... 601 21st Street, and that's at 6 p.m. So May 30th, 6 p.m. at the John Bryan Center on 21st Street in Racine. So in addition to all the things Rebecca was just mentioning, um, do want to get uh, for our members, um, we're, we've mentioned our endorsement process. It is We're going to have two forums uh, in Milwaukee and Green Bay. And the Green Bay Forum is going to be Saturday, June 23rd. It'll be at the De Pere uh, branch of the Brown County Library. Uh, that information will be coming out this weekend. And we'll have a Milwaukee forum Monday, June 18th. We are still working on the location. Hopefully, we'll definitely have that by next week. But uh, So if you're a member of Citizen Action uh, or very interested in potentially becoming a member and want to uh, see these candidates uh, in a very structured forum where we're really going to be pushing them on our platform and our long-term agenda, uh, please come on out to one of those. So with that, though, we got to get out of here. We got a commercial break. I can't believe I'm saying that. A commercial break at the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. Uh, so we'll see you right, right after the break. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. And um, it wouldn't be a week at the Battleground Wisconsin, at least while I'm here, and not talk about Foxconn because it is the defining uh, issue of our time along with healthcare, at least in this state, in terms of the Walker economy versus our economy. Um, and there was Foxconn news this week, a lot of it. So I'm gonna, we're going to work our way through it. The, the big news late last week was that we found out that the Illinois Attorney General is planning on suing the EPA over the Foxconn air exemption. Uh, there was also news this week, or came out actually late last week, that um, Michigan is reviewing our the Foxconn water diversion, and folks know that our water is under the Great Lakes Compact. Michigan would be a part of that. So there's going to be more questions coming up around there. Um, last night, more news out of Racine County and at the, at the, uh, where not only did they approve $68 billion, excuse me, $68 million in borrowing for Foxconn, they actually had to dip into their reserves to do that. And this is the second time that they've uh, gotten money for Foxconn. They were also met by many angry homeowners because, as we had mentioned on a previous show, uh, the county, what they're going to be doing, or the, I, the county or the city, is they're blighting all the property 
uh, on Foxconn in order to be able to do this. So needless to say, this has a number of uh, home homeowners very upset. But Rebecca, let's, let's dive into, uh, this is big news with the Illinois Attorney General suing the EPA. I know our Attorney General suggested, oh, it's nothing, don't worry about it, which makes me think, oh, we should probably really pay attention to this. Um, again, uh, folks are sitting around us are realizing the air floats all around. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable uh, that Governor Walker and this administration seem to care as little about the rule of law as the Trump administration. And thank God we do have these checks and balances because what we saw, for example, with the special elections that we talked about last segment is that the courts kind of step in and say, whoa, 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 like this is not legal. Let's get things back on track. And so I think that's something that we're now seeing with Foxconn we'll see more and more of. Um, but if I were in Illinois, I would be pretty darn upset too. Uh, this is something that impacts all of us. It's not um, right and potentially is not legal. And so we have the Attorney General of Illinois uh, stepping in um, to to sue over the smog, and that's not something we you know hear about a lot. We talk a lot about the water. Um, obviously, in Wisconsin here, we talk a lot about the you know huge tax incentives that are being given to this company. Confusion over the jobs, the lack of transportation to the jobs, the fact that they're spending millions of dollars uh, advertising these jobs in Chicago. But here's yet another thing. Uh, that is highly problematic and, again, potentially illegal about the Foxconn project. Yeah, and just a little detail on this. So, so what, what happened was last, last week EPA uh, identified essentially 51 areas in 22 states that didn't meet federal air quality requirements for ozone. And, um, and this is uh, r really important towards starting to enforce standards that came out in, in 2015. Well... Racine County was exempted in spite of the fact that it qualified in terms of the ozone levels exceeding the limits. Somehow Racine was designated a what they call a non-attainment area. Because of that, it meant that Foxconn was not required to install stringent pollution control equipment. So this is a big deal, and we all know how Trump was heavily involved in initially trouting, touting Foxconn. So... Um, our attorney general may think there's nothing here, but uh, me smells something bad when Milwaukee and Kenosha and the surrounding are all in the ozone, but somehow Racine is excluded even though it's above these levels. Um, so this is big news. And, and Rebecca, you mentioned that when Walker and them first announced this, this stuff wasn't even taught. Like the idea that this was going to be an air polluter wasn't a part of the conversation. I don't recall hardly right. any discussion of this. I know there's been real discussion around the water, and we'll talk more about that. But this is this is a big deal, and and the the information is very clear that they will immediately become one of the top polluters. I think the fourth highest polluter in southeastern Wisconsin. The other three being coal burning power plants. Yeah. For crying out loud. Yeah. So this is a big. A, a big deal, and it, it looks like it reeks from the Fed down to the state here. So we'll have to track this, It's uh, it, and especially uh, with the Illinois Attorney General. It's not like we have uh, nobody here. Uh, they, they could be resourced to actually look into this. 
Uh, the other issue that we wanted to talk about was the water diversion mm-hmm. uh, is being actually looked into by Michigan. Uh, and there was a, a, a group in Michigan that actually filed a complaint and is looking to try to get this uh, decision rev- uh, reversed. So I assume this uh, is going to trigger a process within the Great Lakes Compact that will review this. Don't know if this will lead to anything, but it's just, it's just more of the same uh, when you rush something through like this. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think um, it sounds like there's definitely politics in play. Um, obviously, I think we have a Republican governor in yeah, Michigan. Yeah, Snyder is is his name. So, so I'm not sure, you know, where this is going to go. But for the last several weeks, ever since it came to light that something like 2.7 million gallons of the water that Foxconn would be taking would evaporate, essentially, and yeah. not be returned to the lake, that is deeply disconcerting. Um, and it's disconcerting to people in Wisconsin, but also to all of the other. Um, you know, folks who live around the lake outside of Wisconsin. And so I'm not surprised that we're starting to see uh, Michigan look into it. I just don't know exactly where that's going to go. Yeah, it, we, we admit it's, it, it is unclear. The reason why, when Rebecca says that, you know, over two, two million is going to evaporate a day uh, is important is for, for people who don't understand, the Great Lakes is not renewable, right? Like it, it, it's there and it's an existing system, right? And that's why if you're in the basin, it, that water is, you know, strictly controlled outside of the basin because it can't be replaced outside of sort of the natural systems of, of our, you know, uh, of, of, of our area, our geography. So uh, it's really critical when you find out you're pulling that kind of volume out. So I think we're going to hear more about that. One other thing that uh, continues uh, to, to be an issue is locally the homeowners uh, there who are, essentially having their whole area declared blighted. And I, we talked about this on a previous podcast, kind of the absurdity that this land would be declared blighted. It clearly doesn't meet any traditional definition of blighted, but it goes to show when you're when government and we get an idea we're going to push something through, like the Foxconn, um, you know, pretty much by all means necessary, it's going to get done. And the residents of this blighted area are finding that out. So... Uh, the Racine County took another step this week, Wednesday night, towards uh, making the ability to buy all that land possible. So another round of dealing with, obviously, angry homeowners and just further illustrating the problem around this type of activity. And, and this vision of how you actually create an economy. Um, and, with, yep. Oh, and then and then the borrowing. So yep. I, I could just talk a, a little bit more about the borrowing. So um, this week, actually, last night, uh, yeah, Wednesday today, night. Wednesday night, or right, maybe Tuesday night, um, the county, uh, Racine County Board approved $68 million in borrowing for Foxconn. Um, and this is something that, uh, Matt, you, you mentioned to me earlier, they have to dip into reserves to do. Yep. Um, it's very disconcerting. Um, there, One thing I should note is that there are some new people on the county board who have just been elected in the spring elections who have been able, unable to get any information about what's going on. Um, in order to abstain, the rules of the county board are you have to physically leave the building. Um, so the article that we're looking at right now in the Journal Times by Ricardo, Ricardo Torres says it was unanimous, which it was. Um, but I think like one of the things we're seeing is things are being pushed through uh, local elected leaders aren't being informed. I think they really need enforcements. We should probably talk about that offline. But um, you know, there's there's this strange um, this strange thing happening where these major decisions are being made 
and the public is not being informed. Their representatives are not being informed. And this is like kind of like a pop culture aside. I don't know. Do you watch Silicon Valley on HBO? I, I don't. Okay, so there is an episode that came out this week that you should definitely watch. Um, and one of the one of the streams of plot. Uh, in this episode is that there is um, a software manufacturer who can no longer build in China for one reason, can't build in Bangladesh because they're unionizing, can't build in another oh, country. So so they end up going to North Carolina. And it's like very much like Foxconn, the mayor, they demand all these incentives from the mayor. The mayor grants it, even though they can't afford it. And basically the episode ends... Um, this part of the episode ends with like the factory catching on fire and they there's like the like the sanitation workers didn't come to take away the oily rags and then like it caught on fire and the volunteer firefighters because there's no professional firefighters anymore could try to put it out but then there's no water left just so the there's the water to put it out so anyway it was yeah. it's a really depressing and like funny but also kind of true to life episode um but silicon valley i recommend it yeah when but w the point is when i read these stories you just see the helplessness of regular people, whether they be a homeowner or someone who's against this, or quite frankly, a county board member who was just recently elected in April, who's sitting with this in front of them, right? Like, and you have to digest and make sense of all this. It's, it's like totally set to go. So anyways, we're going to keep talking about it. We think it's important. We will not stop talking. This was a huge mistake. And there is so much else we could be doing around investments, public infrastructure, other things that would actually create the kind of economy we want. We are going to talk more in our next episode about the differences between our economy here in Wisconsin and what's been going on in Minnesota over the last decade with a researcher from the Economic Policy Institute. But you are listening to The Battleground Wisconsin, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are really excited to have a special guest with us to talk more about a new report that just came out this week that really showed some of the fundamental differences between our economic, our, between our economies here in Wisconsin versus Minnesota. And I know we've talked a lot about some of the differences uh, related to healthcare. So we're very excited to have David Cooper. David is uh, the senior economic analyst at the Economic Policy Institute and the author of this report that's been getting a lot of play this week. David, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. So why don't you just give our listeners the, the top lines. What are the key findings or things that you want people to understand that are in your report you released? Sure. So we did this analysis looking at uh, a variety of different economic indicators in both Wisconsin and Mad excuse me in Wisconsin and Minnesota, uh, looking at differences at what's happened between the two states from 2010 to 2017, obviously coinciding with the change in administrations in both states and the, the differences in, in policy agendas that uh, the two states took. And what we found is that on pretty much every single metric you look at, Minnesota has outperformed Wisconsin over the last seven years. And we looked at everything from the sort of big top-line indicators like job growth, where Minnesota's job growth was about 11 percent compared to only 7.9 percent in Wisconsin, to some of the indicators that I think get more at what the conditions are for actual uh, working families, things like what happened to wages, what happened to incomes, household incomes, family incomes, uh, the poverty rate. And on every single one of these measures, we saw Minnesota outperforming Wisconsin. Wages, I think, is one of the clearest ones. Uh, wage growth, 
uh, was faster in Minnesota than in Wisconsin at every single point on the wage distribution. So whether you were a low-wage worker, a middle-wage worker, or even a high-wage worker, if you were in Minnesota, you fared better over the last seven years than your counterparts in Wisconsin. Could you dive a little more into that, David? That strikes me as fundamentally important and, and something we've talked yeah. a lot of, we've talked a lot about on the show that um, we spend a lot of time actually trying to get uh, ideas out about what progressive leaders ought to be setting as a vision for where we need to go to have fundamental change in our economy. Talk a, talk a little bit more about what maybe is at least occurring in Minnesota that might be driving this fundamental difference on wages, which is what a lot of folks care deeply about. Sure. So I would I would point to three policy decisions that I think have, have influenced what's happened for wages in the two states. Uh, the first one is early on in Governor Dayton's tenure in Minnesota, they made large investments in public infrastructure. They, they, they uh, made investments to, to build out schools, to improve, improve the infrastructure, and this led to a huge boom in construction jobs. And construction jobs are generally good-paying jobs, uh, but it also f- led to stronger job growth overall. And as the labor market improves, uh, as employers have to start competing with each other to find workers uh, and, to, uh, and to retain staff, then they have to start bidding up wages. They have to start raising wages to attract and hold on to folks. And what we saw is is that that wage growth in Minnesota was a lot stronger than in Wisconsin. The other factor uh, that I would point to is what happened to unions in uh, Minnesota versus Wisconsin. As I think most folks know, uh, Wisconsin passed some very anti-union legislation in Act 10, which Uh, targeted public sector unions and then subsequently a right-to-work law, which undermines private sector unions. Um, And we saw a huge decline in union density in Wisconsin that that didn't happen in Minnesota. And when you reduce the share of workers that are in unions, that has a depressing effect on wages because the more folks that are in unions, we know from research that uh, union workers tend to make more per hour than non-union workers. But the presence of union workers also raises wages for folks who aren't in a union because their employers have to compete with those unionized employers, uh, again, to try and hire and and retain staff. So the the smaller share, uh, as the share of workers that are in a union declines in any particular industry, uh, it tends to have a depressing effect on wages both for union workers and for workers in that industry overall. So those are some of the things that I think led to uh, you know the slower growth in wages in uh, in in Wisconsin. The last, actually, I, I forgot the third one. Let me just mention the third one. Real quick, is the third one investing billions of dollars in a large uh, multinational <laughs> company with no job standards? Was that it? No. We no. Didn't. Darn. Okay. Shoot. We're kind of okay. Sorry. What is the third one? <laughs> the third one is raising the minimum wage. Oh shoot. Okay. Walker's not going to be happy. Yeah. In, in Minnesota. They raised the minimum wage, and and not surprisingly, low-wage workers in Minnesota had much stronger job growth than their counterparts in Wisconsin. No, no surprise there. Um, this is Rebecca Lynch from the Working Families Party. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing as the race kind of heats up here um, for the for the governor's race in particular is that there's this whole narrative around jobs and economic development. And since Robert's not here, I'm going to be the surrogate Robert. 
uh, but you know, we, we talk about it almost every podcast, that there is this trope on both the right and the left that the problem is actually not government policies or companies, but that the problem is our workers, and our workers just aren't skilled enough, and we've got to make sure they get more skills. So last week, Governor Walker released his first official campaign ad and it was, um, you know, highlighting his investment in technical training, which is, as we mentioned last week, like very disingenuous because he's actually starved our technical colleges. But regardless, I'm talking about how that is um, the reason why we have such great employment numbers. And again, you know, the numbers are not great you know, when we look at this study and we compare it to our neighboring state. But, you know, he is running on a platform of we have the lowest unemployment. We've created all these jobs. And part of the reason why is because I'm investing in technical skills training for workers. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So th this is a, a, a something that we hear all the time that we can just sort of educate ourselves out of this problem. And unfortunately, that's that's simply not the case. Um, you know, it is true that having more education helps, that, that the more folks that are able to achieve higher levels of education, they're going to make, they're going to be paid more. Uh, they're probably going to have an easier time finding a job. Um, and it does, and, and states that have higher uh, concentrations of high, highly educated workers tend to see stronger productivity and wage growth. So that it is true that education helps, but uh, that doesn't, under, that doesn't, fix some of these underlying problems, which have more to do with just overall bargaining power of workers. And, and, and if we look at what's happened, for example, to wages for college-educated workers over the last 20 years, wages have actually been flat for college-educated workers over the last 20 years. So, uh, you know, it's not like uh, getting encouraging higher education is going to solve all of these underlying problems that are depressing wages and incomes for a lot of workers. And not only that, you know, technical education is certainly uh, something that's good, and if it allows folks to, to find good jobs, then, then I'm all for it. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the things that Wisconsin has done ha has sort of undercut potential job growth in sectors uh, that need both educated and less educated workers. Um, you know, some of the, 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 the fact that Wisconsin chose to not expand Medicaid, uh, rejected federal funding for uh, high-speed rail between Madison and Milwaukee. Um, these are all things that would have created jobs, and, and for folks that some of whom would would need greater education, some of whom w would have probably only needed a high school education. Um, the last point I would make on this is that in years past, employers would have provided a lot of the training required to do the job, and it's only in recent decades that they've started to basically say, if you don't have a college degree or if you don't have some uh, skill certification right off the bat, I'm not going to hire you. The, the employers aren't doing the training that they used to, and I think you can tie some of that, again, to that decline in unionization that I talked about earlier. A lot of time, you know, in, in years, in decades past, uh, the unions played a big role in uh, driving workforce education and, and providing some of that skills training uh, that Walker is touting. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you mentioned that because that is a critical piece, right? The, the the kind of skills folks come in with and then the kind of training that is set up in each industry, which, as you mentioned, there is a used to be a strong history of labor management with labor really, uh, with hiring halls and a whole bunch of other ways, really bringing a skilled workforce. And if you, de you, get, rid of, you get rid of unions, yeah, yeah, apprenticeship, all of that. Um, the, other, the other thing that I really like to drill down before you go in your report is, right, like you really make the case for the role of government, right? The idea that 
you have to create the conditions for workers, both to be able, whether they be entry level or, um, you know, closer to the minimum wage or higher up, uh, you have to create conditions where they can have fair bargaining leverage to be able to actually, you know, drive the market fairly and, and drive up their wages. Uh, and, and short of that, it, everyone's going to suffer. Yeah, I, I mean, oftentimes we, you know, folks refer to, quote unquote, the market as if it is this, uh, this magical force that exists out there. And, and if we touch it, we're going to be harmed. Uh, we can't influence it whatsoever, and that simply isn't the case. The market exists within the structures uh, that government sets up. And so if government establishes rules uh, for how that market will operate and, and establishes rules that make that operate work more fairly for ordinary folks, um, then, then you're going to lead to better outcomes for ordinary working people and things like labor standards, like the minimum wage, like giving workers the capacity to, to join together and, and bargain together. Uh, and then making investments in in, uh, in public goods, things like infrastructure, schools. Uh, these are all things that government can do to create a market that rewards ordinary, ordinary working families as opposed to just uh, shareholders in, in international corporations that really don't need uh, tax breaks. Well, David, we really appreciate you taking the time today to Tell us about the report, give us the highlights, but also the um, tremendous amount of time that goes into putting a report like this together. Uh, it's extremely insightful, uh, so thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, uh, so folks, please, uh, we'll have a link to that. Check out, read the research, and check out the Economic Policy Institute. It's a fabulous uh, organization, nonprofit, that does tremendous work around the economy. Thank you much, David. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, we want to course thank david for joining us and uh we as always want to thank brian wildridge our producer who makes the battleground wisconsin happen every week but we got to get out of here and we'll see you next week at the battleground wisconsin <laughs>